Romans 9, 1 through 18. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness, or bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Verse 10. And not only so, but also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had, no- and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that the Lord's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. All right. Last week, we finished up Romans 8. We saw that God is gracious to us and has already uh, given us the ultimate gift of the sacrifice of his only son, Christ Jesus. The love of Christ for us cannot be separated by anything possible in creation, not by disaster or famine or violence of man. There's no possible thing that can usurp the ultimate truth that is God's love. We are ultimately conquerors of the love of Christ, even if we suffer physical setbacks. The war against sin and death has already been fought, and Christ has come out as the victor. Um, This week, we are starting Romans 9. So, let's get into it. Starting with verses 1 and 2. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul's tone has greatly shifted coming off of Romans 8. Uh, just one verse ago, he was talking about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No possible thing in creation, not life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, no, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, can separate us from the love of Christ. This is a wonderfully glorious truth that should fill us with joy. But now, Paul is switching to sorrow. He is telling us, with every single means of authenticity he can, he is speaking the truth in Christ. He is not lying. He is putting up his own conscience, saying it bears witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul is telling us that the, the truly authentic nature of his sorrow, an unceasing and great sorrow that brings anguish to his heart. Uh, so what exactly is it that's bringing great unceasing sorrow to Paul's heart? Well, let's get into verse, uh, verse um, 3. We will see. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is agonizing over his kinsmen. Uh, that is the cause of his pain, the Israelites. Paul himself is Jewish, and to see his fellow brothers and sisters in unbelief causes him so much pain. That is what Paul is currently having pain over. Paul is echoing a sentiment from um, Moses that happens in Exodus 32, 30 through 32, uh, which says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, uh, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Essentially, kill me. Blot me out of the book of life. He wants to put himself down for his people. Both Paul and Moses seek to have themselves accursed so that their people may be redeemed. Uh, however, the reality is uh, both Paul and Moses are sinners. Uh, their death or the sacrifice that they could potentially give is not enough to take away the wrath of God from others. So while Paul says he wishes that he could be accursed and cut off from Christ, it's not really an option to justify the Jewish people or to bring the Jewish people into Christ. It is only by Christ that we can be redeemed. Both Paul and Moses have a distinct love for the souls of man. They are in anguish over the fact that they cannot be, that they're not being uh, justified, that they are still in denial of Christ, uh, in particular for the Jewish people, Paul's Jewish brothers. Um, Spurgeon puts it like this, uh, get love for the souls of men, then you will 
not be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat or about the crochets of a family and the little disturbances that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries. I need not further describe them. If you are concerned about the souls of men, get your soul full of great grief and the little griefs will be driven out. The souls of men, our fellow man, will bring grief to us. While we rejoice in the salvation of one man, we also grieve in the damnation of another. There is grief to be had in our brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents and all, all the other, however many removed you want to go, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, and there is grief to be had in their denying of the truth of God and continuing in their damnation. Paul is going to continue to show this grief is being had, but we're also going to see even deeper that um, that the Lord is not uh, that the Lord is not sinful. This grief that's going to be happening. Um, verses four and five. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul's grief is especially rough when he considers all the many blessings that Israel has been given. Uh, we also examined earlier in Romans that Israel has been given benefits of circumcision and having the law in physicality, but we also know from earlier in Romans that these things are no real benefit to the unbelieving Jew and are rather even further condemnation for them. The believing Jew has such wonderful, wonderful benefits as Paul lists them here, even being a part of the group that has the genealogy of Christ as such a wonderful benefit. They have so much, they've been given such grace, and Paul sees that good grace that God is giving to them. He sees them turning away to their sin, denying Christ is such pain and such grief, just continuing to turn towards damnation. They're not looking at the wonderful things that they're being given and saying, this is uh, this should then lead me to the eventual end of scripture, which is salvation in Christ. No, they're, they're continuing their own idolatry and their own uh, pridefulness. But here we also see a very clear statement of the Godhood of Christ, saying he is God over all, blessed forever. The Israelites have been given such grace, still denying Christ is an agonizing reality, and one that Paul is currently confronting here in Romans 9. Um, verse 6 through 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for... 
not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise is said. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. So, Paul is making it clear that the word of God did not fail. God is keeping his covenant, but the covenant inheritance is not simply through a genealogical means. Not every Jew is a child of Abraham simply because they are an offspring. Ishmael was born first. He was born before Isaac. Ishmael was a child of the flesh. He was a descendant of Abraham, yet uh, it is the offspring that is born in covenant, which is identified as the heir, and whose God's covenant favor would be extended to. Even though Ishmael was born of the flesh, he was born outside of the promise. Paul also uh, has set up seeds for this all the way back in in Romans 2.28, when talking about having that outward appearance of a Jew and not having circumcision of the heart. It is not flesh that decides the heirs, but the promise. It is not circumcision that is making you uh, a part of the covenant. Uh, It's not physical circumcision. It is the circumcision of the heart that brings you into the covenant. It is not only by physical means. Verse 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the, young, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul takes us to the next Old Testament example that he is using to prove his argumentation. So uh, we just saw it the last, uh, last three verses, and we're seeing in these next three. It's, it's very common for uh, New Testament authors to use the Old Testament to uh, show a point or to show a theological concept. But there are even more particular things in this example that uh, you could probably go to the past example and point out. This one makes an even more clear case. Um, Jacob and Esau are both born of the same father, Isaac, who is the one who inherits the covenant under his father, Abraham. Okay, so the other people, or the um, Isaac and Ishmael, were also born of the same father, but Jacob and Esau are also born of the same mother, 
which was uh, not the case for the previous example. That, that would be something that you could potentially point to and say, well, this is not, they're, they're born of two different mothers, therefore it's, it's only the promise under Sarah that was made that is used to determine it. Okay, so now we have one mother, one father in this example. And uh, this was uh, now also decided before both Jacob and Esau's birth. The Lord did not make distinction between them based upon action, based upon deeds, or based upon faith. Uh, there is no distinction to be made because they're not even born yet. They have not done anything. It is not possible for them to earn the Lord's favor when they haven't even been born yet. There's no possible distinction for it. And this was also not based upon birth order either. Jacob and Esau were twins. It was the younger who's being served by the older, uh, which is completely contrary to the uh, established societal norms that the younger would serve the older. Uh, but that's not the case here. And they're also born so close in time. Virtually, there's barely an age distinction here to even go off of. Um, there is uh, not an outside factor in this example, uh, which one could point to and say, look, this is the reason why the Lord did it this way. It was purely based upon the sovereign predestination of the Lord, who chose Jacob and not Esau. Even more than that, he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. And we can't simply boil down the hatred of Esau to simply being loved less. There has to be a hatred or a distinction that comes with the weight of rejection. Esau was rejected by the Lord. God loved one. He loved Jacob, but he rejected the other. He rejected Esau. There is no birthright. Uh, there is no thing that you can look at according to age. Uh, there is no bastard child whom you could appoint to and question the legitimacy of. No sorts of actions can be taken by either child to determine this. It is the will of the Lord to where the Lord says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14 through 16. What then shall we say? Or what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. <clears throat> so, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Can we call, can we call injustice onto the Lord? By no means. Perish the thought. Could God's sovereignty call into question his perfect righteousness is purely unthinkable get that thought out of your head it's essentially what paul is saying here when he's saying by no means 
Um, Paul cites Exodus thirty three nineteen to show his uh, the theological principle here. Um, mercy is not a right that we are owed. Just as grace is being given something we deserve, mercy is not being given something we deserve. Being spared for judgment is mercy. The Lord will give mercy as he sees fit, and the Lord gives compassion as he sees fit. It is not ours to take and say that this thing that we have here, we deserve this. We cannot say that. We cannot say that we deserve the mercy of the Lord because we are not being given the judgment that we deserve. If we were to boil it down to what we truly deserved, it would be eternal damnation. But praise the Lord for his mercy and compassion and his salvation of utterly broken men. The mercy of the Lord, uh, the mercy of God is not dependent on our will and what we desire and how we operate. We are helpless sinners in the eyes of the Lord. Our works are filthy rags to him with no merit. God's mercy is not dependent on us, but it is dependent on God. It is God's mercy after all, and he and he provides it as he sees fit. Verse 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul is now quoting from another text in Exodus here, uh, namely Exodus 9, 16. Uh, God has raised up, uh, raised Pharaoh up for the purpose to harden his heart. God is showing his glory and power through the plagues that are happening because Pharaoh is not letting the Jewish people go. Uh, these Pharaoh's heart is being hardened and he will say no to Moses when he says, let my people go. Um, God hardens the heart of who he wills. It is God's decision to harden the heart. Uh, it is important to note that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, uh, that in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God is not creating new sin or creating new evil. The Lord is giving Pharaoh over to his evil desires as an act of judgment. We know in Exodus uh, 7.13, Exodus 7.22, Exodus uh, 8.15, 8.19, 8.32, 9.7, and 9.34, that Pharaoh is willing to harden his own heart. It is not outside of the will of Pharaoh for his heart to be hardened. So why does Paul not try to include this or try to emphasize uh, the creaturely will of Pharaoh to turn towards his own evil? Why is that not the forefront of the passages that we're looking at? Well, put simply, it doesn't matter. 
it doesn't matter what the will of Pharaoh is. The Lord has mercy over those whom he has mercy, and he hardens those whom he wills. Just as we are quick to get behind the statement, the Lord loved Jacob, we are quick behind to get behind the statement that the Lord gives mercy to whom he gives mercy. Yet we are so hesitant to realize the truth behind the Lord hating Esau. We are so hesitant to say that the Lord hardens the heart of whom he wills. We love the Lord's sovereignty when we can see the direct benefit for us. But we have to realize the reality that just as the Lord saves man, he also condemns man. Just as we praise the Lord for his salvation of man, we have to see that his glory is also displayed on full when he acts as a righteous judge. His glory is seen in both sides, both in his mercy and in his hardening and judgment. We should praise the glory of the Lord in either case. The Lord will harden the hearts of who he wills, and he will have mercy on who he wills. All right. That is um, that is all I have for, uh, for these verses. Um, is there any questions or comments before I close this in prayer? Wait, the Lord said he hates the one guy? Yeah, the Lord said he hates Esau. Why he did nothing. Uh, you're going to have to probably ex explain what you're asking a bit further. You're asking why the Lord... They weren't born, right? Yeah, they, they weren't born. Yeah, they weren't born. He loved Jacob. No, it's fine. You spell it E-S-A-U. But I only know that because I, I was typing out stuff for this. Yeah, they, they weren't born. That's That's... That's one of the, the points for it, is that it is not our favor that determines, or it's not our actions or our will, which is the determinant, or the, what determines the Lord's favor. He sees us all as desperately sinful, even though that they have done nothing yet, but their nothing doesn't determine whom the Lord is merciful towards. And is not anything that they could do to determine that either. Because the, the ultimate point that is, that is being talked about here is uh, with the, the damnation that Paul is so, um, so grieved over. He is very, he feels the weight of the sadness and the grief as happening of the Jewish people, yet it is uh, the Lord who saves. At the end of Romans 8, 
see Saul even clearly, very clearly, that Paul is saying that it is the Lord who saves, it is the Lord who justifies, it is the Lord who has predestined us, called us, justified us, and has also predestined us for uh, sanctification, glorification. It is the Lord who is sovereign in every single facet of our lives. And uh, if he is going to have grief about one group being saved over another, yeah, that is, that, that's what's being talked about with the Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Uh, Malachi 1. I think it's 1 through 3, but 2 through 3, I think, has the quote in there. Is, um, man, I lost my place. Um, that if you are going to feel grieved, over someone not being saved, it is going to be very easy if you're given that framework to then take it and bring hatred towards the Lord. To say that this is all the Lord's fault and this is unjust of him. And uh, Paul is showing clearly that it's, it is not unjust of the Lord to act in this manner, even though it is saddening to us. And we are deeply grieved over it. It is not unjust of the Lord to choose whom he saves, to predestine those whom he saves. Doesn't the Bible say that God loves everyone the same and hates no one? Or is this specific situation different? Um, well, I would say God loves people differently in a sense of you may have love for your children but you that love is also you're also going to have a love for your wife so the church is the bride of christ and the love for the church that christ has is going to look very different from the love that um is uh, shown for everyone else and, and god does show constant grace to people love to people now there is still a manner of rejection that comes with that because are, are you going to then say that uh how do i put this that that when you are punishing a child that um that then that means that your love is no longer there even if you're acting in righteous judgment um but this is uh, I I'm weary to I guess um conflate the two if that makes sense um note Esau was I guess the head of the Edomites which I think cursed Israel or something. See, but that's that's not what's being called into question here. Uh, because even though that, that might be the eventual reality of Esau, that Paul is establishing the principle that that doesn't even matter. That is before they were born that God chooses whom he saves. But it is a, um, okay. 
Is there any other questions before we pray? No? Okay. Let me um, pray for us. Lord, um, I thank you for the time that we're able to look at these passages. Um, and I thank you that there are difficult to look at passages in, the, in, in your word. That there are sometimes realities that we, we don't want to confront. Um, I just pray that even in our, our grievance of uh, the reality that some are not being saved, that we will see your judgment, we'll see your salvation, and we will see your glory in all of it, Lord, because it's all of its eventual end is to bring glory to you, that we worship your glory. That so doing, we do not grow arrogant. We do not grow prideful because it is not by our own doing that salvation comes upon to us. It is uh, by your doing. Salvation belongs to you and not to us. I just pray that we will continue to have that understanding and that understanding will call us to praise you deeper, will call us to want to worship you more, Lord. I just pray that we'll go throughout our week that we will just um, read your word every day to pray to you to glorify you all that we do I pray for all these things in wonderful and holy name Amen